0: It has been a joy to be here, and I appreciate uh, the opportunity so much. And uh, I told Pastor a couple of times, you folks are easy to preach to, and I thank the Lord for the liberty to preach God's Word. That's uh, what God wants, and that's uh, partly on you uh, to be an attentive uh, group of people, and I appreciate that very much, and thank you for all your care. Wasn't that meal great? I didn't even look for a salt shaker. Not one time, I didn't need it. And uh, so thank you, ladies and men, whoever uh, put that all together. uh, Just a great job and appreciate uh, your faithfulness throughout these meetings. I know it's a little bit of a different uh, schedule than maybe normal and on a holiday weekend at that. But uh, just uh, you've done a tremendous job and I appreciate uh, you staying through this final service. Take your Bible. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 20, Jeremiah and the 20th chapter. I'm going to read just one verse here in chapter 20. We'll come back to this chapter in in short order. But Jeremiah chapter 20. We'll look at verse number 9. Jeremiah is speaking. And in verse 9 of Jeremiah 20, the prophet said, Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor her. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Is this your daughter? Yes, sir. <laughs> you to, you told me she was a problem. <laughs> Can you <say> hello? <laughs> Didn't you talk about somebody <laughs> <laughs> Suffer the little children to come unto me. <laughs> For such are the kingdom of God. Reminds me of the preacher, he, every time uh, something would happen, he would respond with Scripture. And uh, one time they had an outdoor service, he was preaching under a tent, and he was preaching away, and a big June bug flew right in his mouth. And uh, he kind of stopped, swallowed, and people thought, what will he say? He always responds with Scripture. And he said, he was a stranger, but I took him in. And so... <laughs> So now if this service goes past 3 o'clock, it's her fault, right? Okay. (laughs) Jeremiah chapter 20. Let's start verse 9 again. Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. No matter how hard man works at it, this world is never going to be a perfect place. Now, man tries. Man works hard to try to create an environment that we can live in, enjoy, be happy, raise our families, live in peace. Man tries to create a perfect world. But this place, the world, is never going to be a perfect place. Now, it once was. When God created the heavens and the earth, he stood back on day six and he said, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. God created a perfect place. But we read on in Genesis chapter three where it says the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And the serpent said unto the woman, hath God said, ye shall not eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden? And the woman said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, God has said, ye shall not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And the serpent said, ye shall not surely die. For God doth know, in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, Gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Adam and Eve sinned. They disobeyed the direct command of God. In chapter 2 of Genesis, after God had created this garden for man to live in, he said, Of all the trees in the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely eat die. So now Adam and Eve violate that command. They sinned against God. And when they did, God said to them, because thou hast eaten of the fruit of the tree which I commanded thee, saying thou shouldest not eat, cursed is the ground for thy sake. So you and I know today that all of the The division, all of the devastation, all of the destruction, all of the death in this world is a result of that curse that came upon this world as a result of sin. We are living on a sin-cursed earth. And I don't know about you, but I look around at the conditions of things today in this world and it's kind of discouraging. I mean, when you watch the news and you listen to people talk and you see some of the ramifications of the way our culture is going, it's discouraging. It kind of reminds me of when I was in college. And uh, back in those days, uh, there was rarely a day in those uh, early 1970s in college where a chapel speaker did not remind us as college students that America was never going to see her 200th birthday. We were told that this this country would never make it to July 4th, 1976. And, And there was some pretty good evidence that we were on a course of destruction. I went to public school. I did not attend kindergarten. They didn't have kindergarten when I started school. Watertown, Wisconsin is the home of America's first kindergarten. You learn something if you come to the afternoon service. The first kindergarten was established in Watertown, Wisconsin in 1848. The building that they taught that first kindergarten is still there in Watertown. You can go to the Octagon House. It's It's a historical marker, and you can go there and walk in that building and see the classroom where the first kindergarten was held in 1848. But when I went to school, they didn't have kindergarten. I'm older than you think. And I went to first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade in a public school, and In the corner of the classrooms in that public school, there was a speaker. And every morning we would get in that classroom and the principal's voice would come over that speaker. And he would say, good morning, boys and girls. I hope you're all at your desk and you're all seated because I want to read to you a verse out of the Bible. And he would read a Bible verse. Then he'd say, now, boys and girls, I want you to bow your head, close your eyes and fold your hands on your desk because I want to pray, and ask the Lord to give us a good day, and he would pray. Well, I went to the same public school in fifth grade, and there was a speaker up in the corner of the classroom, but it was only used for announcements, because in 1962 and then in 1963, prayer and Bible reading were taken out of the public school. It was illegal to do that. And many in America saw that as a watershed moment. Many people believe that this is the beginning of the end because when you take God and the Bible away from our children, that's, that's, that's surely not going to be good. And the 60s, of course, were filled with all kinds of of unusual things coming into our country. There was the rock music culture that came, swept across our nation. And it was followed by the free sex movement. And uh, the 1960s and early 70s were filled with rioting. The Watts riots in Los Angeles, the Kent State University riots there in Ohio. And uh, people were just concerned that this country was heading on a course of destruction, you remember inflation in those days? Oh, my. First car I bought with a, with a loan, I went and got a loan for a car, paid 18.5% interest on that car loan. A 1972 Datsun, <laughs> 18.5% interest. My payments were $48.24 a month. 18.5% of that was interest. My wife and I, we bought our first house, and, and, uh, and we paid $26,000 for that house, in Porte, Indiana. It was probably the nicest house we've ever lived in. It wasn't the biggest, but it was the nicest house we've ever lived in, $26,000. My payments were $173.57 a month, 10.5% interest. I remember the first monthly payment I made, I, made, I, I paid off $0.17 cents of principal. We sold that house 10 years later, made $8,000. Inflation. Amazing time. Remember the gas shortages back in the 70s? Kind of reminds you of the news today, doesn't it? The gas shortages. Uh, The gas stations weren't open on the weekends, Saturday and Sunday. You couldn't buy gas. I was traveling in evangelism, pulling a trailer, and, and, uh, and, and we had uh, 40 gallons of gas on board on our truck, and, and I had five, five-gallon gas cans in the back of my truck full of gas. I had two uh, propane tanks, 30 pounds each. I mean, we were a moving bomb. If anybody had hit us, we would have destroyed America. <laughs> but you couldn't buy gas on the weekends, so we had to carry all this fuel with us in order to get to the next meeting. Amazing days. And everybody was convinced that this nation was spiraling toward destruction and we would never see July 4th, 1976. Can I encourage you tonight to set your affection on things above and not on the things of the earth? We need to lift our eyes above the circumstances, above the chaos, above the confusion and uncertainty and look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The Bible says, thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed upon thee, because he trusteth in thee, trusting in the Lord forever, for the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. We live in some unusual times. We live in some chaotic times. But I believe Jeremiah was living in very similar circumstances as we are today. And I want you to notice with me in this brief service this afternoon three observations from Jeremiah's life and ministry that can be an encouragement to us. First, I want you to notice a universal collapse. Now, by the time we get to Jeremiah chapter 20, Jeremiah is not a young man. He's been around the block a time or two. This is not his first rodeo, as we might say. Jeremiah was alive during the time of Josiah. You remember King Josiah? He came to the throne at the age of eight. Eight years old, King Josiah. And it wasn't an easy time. Josiah followed the reign of his father, Amnon, and his grandfather, Manasseh, who for 57 years prior to Josiah had led the nation away from the God of heaven into all kinds of idolatrous worship. The land was filled with groves, carved works, molten images, and people were worshiping all these false gods. The the house of God was, was in shambles. But Josiah comes to the throne, and the Bible says in 2 Chronicles 34, in the eighth year of his reign, so when he was 16 years old, while he was yet young, Josiah began to seek after the God of David, his father. So he kind of turns his back on his, on his human heritage, his, his earthly heritage of, of Amnon and Manasseh, and he sets his eyes upon his spiritual heritage through David. And Josiah at that age says, you know what? we got to assemble. We've got to worship together. We've got to come together as a people and worship the true God. So Josiah takes some money out of the treasury And he appoints some people, some workmen, to repair the house of the Lord. It hasn't been used for for six decades or more, so it's in shambles. So they go into this house of God, and they begin to repair it so they can worship. And as they were repairing the house of the Lord, they found a book. But they didn't know what it was. So they took it to Shaphan, the scribe, and when Shaphan read the book, he determined it was the law of God. It was the Old Testament Torah, It was God's law. So Shaphan takes the law to Josiah and he reads the word of God to Josiah. And when Josiah heard the word of God read, the Bible says he rent his clothes, which was symbolic of his humility before God. And Josiah then calls all the people together, the young, the old, the men, the women, the children, he calls them all together, and they stood while someone read the entire law of God. After the book was read, Josiah got up and he said, now, ladies and gentlemen, what you just heard read is how I'm going to live. And what you just heard read is the way I'm going to start leading. And he called the people to stand to it, and they stood to it. And for 31 years, Israel enjoys one of the greatest revivals on record. Well, Jeremiah lived through all that. But Jeremiah lived long enough to see Josiah come off the throne. And he was followed by Jehoiakim, and then Jehoiada, and then Zedekiah. And those next three kings took the nation of Israel right back into idolatry. And this whole time Jeremiah is crying out to the nation, he's saying, wait a minute, stop. Think about what you're doing. We've been down this road before. This doesn't work. We're going to get in trouble. We're we're going to to destroy ourselves. You've got to come back to God. And the whole book of Jeremiah, he's pleading with the nation to come back, to have revival in chapter 2. And he says, thy own wickedness shall correct thee, thy own backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is a wicked thing that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God. In Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 3, he says, break up your fallow ground. Take away the foreskins off your heart. You've become desensitized. You're no longer sensitive and and tender to the things of God. He's calling them back, but they're not listening. In chapter 4 and verse 20, he says, my people have no knowledge. They are all foolish children. They are sottish children. They are wise to do evil. But to do good, they have no knowledge. Does that remind you of today? Boy, we, we're wise to do evil in this country. I mean, we, we've gotten really good at corruption. And we've gotten even better at covering it up. But you go on the streets and ask somebody to quote John 3.16, they can't do it. We're wise to do evil, but to do good, we have no knowledge And so by the time Jeremiah comes to chapter 7, he says, amend your ways and your doings. He's pleading with them to have revival. In chapter 8, he says, the wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Lo, they've rejected the word of the Lord and what wisdom is in them. And by the time he gets to chapter 9, he says, oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. By chapter 13, Jeremiah says,
1: We've gone too far.
0: We've pushed the envelope. Now the writing is on the wall. We're going to be destroyed. We're going to be taken captive. And he prophesies the Babylonian captivity. In chapter 13 and verse 19, he says, the cities of the south shall be shut up. None shall open them. She shall be utterly carried away. If you look up at, at verse 15 of chapter 19, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I'll bring upon this city and upon all her towns all the evil that I have pronounced against it, because they have hardened their necks, that they might not hear my words. He's telling them, it's too late. We're in a free fall, a universal collapse. He describes it very specifically now in chapter 20, verse 4. He says, For thus saith the Lord, Behold, I'll make thee a terror to thyself and to all thy friends, and they shall fall by the sword of their enemies, and thine eyes shall behold it, and I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them captive into Babylon, and shall slay them with the sword. Verse 5, he says, I will deliver all the strength of this city. He says, "Uh, You're counting on your, your defense systems? Your military muscle to protect you, forget it. It's gone. Verse 5, he goes on, all the labors thereof, your job, your employment, your source of income, it's gone. Verse 5, and all the precious things thereof, your refinement, your culture, your art, your theater, your sports, it's gone. And all the treasures of the kings of Judah, your your, your federal reserve, your bank accounts, your your retirement funds, they're gone. Wholly carried away. A universal collapse. And none of this surprises Jeremiah. He's been telling him it's coming He's been warning them. He's been trying to get them to turn around. He's been trying to get them to repent, but they've turned a deaf ear. So now, as it comes, Jeremiah's not surprised at this universal collapse. But what he is surprised at is, secondly, an unrelenting criticism. Jeremiah's not surprised that the nation is in a free fall. What he is surprised about is the fact that he's going to get blamed for it. Look at verse 1 of chapter 20. It says, Now Pashur, the son of Emer, the priest, who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. Then Pashur smote Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. Now Pashur is described here in verse 1 as a priest. Jeremiah, we know, is a prophet. Now, certainly, our Old Testament knowledge would tell us that a priest in the Old Testament and a prophet had different roles. They they were assigned different duties, different responsibilities. But I think if you were to put a flowchart together of the Old Testament hierarchy of how God designed things the priest and the prophet would be on sort of an equal line. For example, when God wanted to speak to his people, they didn't have a Bible yet, so he would speak to them through a priest or a prophet, sometimes through a king, but most often through a priest or a prophet is how God would deliver his message to his people. So in a sense, you could say that these two offices of priest and prophet in the Old Testament were somewhat equal. Now here's this priest, Pashur. Jeremiah comes into his territory and he's preaching this doom and gloom message of destruction and Pashur doesn't like it. So the Bible says in verse 2 that he smote Jeremiah. The word smote here in the Hebrew carries the connotation of smiting with the hand or with an object. So there's physical abuse here. Then it says in verse 2, he put Jeremiah into stocks. He put his feet in stocks and set him at the high gate of Benjamin. The high gate of Benjamin was the entry and the exit point in and out of the city. So now everybody could walk by this degraded prophet and laugh at him, make fun of him, curse him. Whatever they wanted to say to him, they could say it. Jeremiah is not expecting any of this. I mean, he has faithfully preached, thus saith the Lord. He's a prophet. He, he, he said, God, what do you want me to preach? God told him he'd go preach it. And he faithfully did that with a broken heart. And yet now, when the collapse happens, he's the one getting blamed for it. He's the one being derided. He, he's the one that, that's being defrocked of, of everything that he has. Look at verse 7. Jeremiah says, O Lord... Thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. I, I am in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. For since I speak, I cried out. I cried violence and spoiled, because the word of the Lord was made up a reproach unto me and a derision daily. Jeremiah said, God, I don't get this. I, I, I didn't sign up for this. Lord, you lied to me. You deceived me. I, I was deceived. You didn't. You didn't tell me about this part. You just told me to preach this message. I did. You didn't tell me I was the one that was going to lose everything. You didn't tell me that I was the one that was going to get the criticism. That I was going to suffer physically. That I was the one that everybody's going to be laughing at, making fun of, and deriding. God, I didn't sign up for this. This isn't in my contract. This, didn't, this isn't in my job description. And Jeremiah is ready to quit. Again, look at verse 9. Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. Jeremiah says, I'm out. This isn't right. This isn't fair. By the way, none of this was legal there were false prophets in the Old Testament. And when someone preached a false false message, according to the law, someone would report that to the high priest. The high priest would, would convene a council of priests. They would hear the message. They would determine if it was a true message from God or not. And if it was not, then that prophet was removed. But none of that's followed here. None of that is done here. This is one guy who has a little power who says, I'm stopping you. I'm going to silence you. And Jeremiah's about to quit. See, Jeremiah didn't have the opportunity to turn like we do to Paul's words where he said, Yea, and all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Jeremiah couldn't turn to the words of Peter where he said, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial that shall try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rather rejoice. Jeremiah couldn't even read the words of Jesus where he said, If the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own, but because you're not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. He, He couldn't read those promises. And so Jeremiah is discouraged. And he's quitting. You know, the devil thinks if he can bring enough pressure or enough persecution on God's people, he can stop God's message. The devil thinks in his mind, if I can bring enough pressure on God's people, I can get them to quit. I can get them to give up. But I want you to notice thirdly this afternoon, because the devil has a very bad memory. I want you to see not just a universal collapse and an unrelenting criticism. But I want you to see in the life of Jeremiah an underlying condition. Now, look at verse 9 again, real carefully. He says, Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name, period. Now, I don't know how much time elapses between that period and the next word. Maybe it was a few seconds. Maybe it was several minutes. Maybe it was an hour. I tend to think it was several days. I think when Jeremiah put that period after that sentence, he put the writing instrument down. He rolled up the scroll. He pushed back from the desk and walked out the door. He quit. You say, Brother Gedge, how, how do you think that? Because of what he says later. The verse doesn't end with that period. He says, But his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shot up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. You don't get weary of something after a couple seconds. Jeremiah quit. He folded up the tent he threw in the towel however you want to say it he walked away but you don't get you don't get weary of that condition after a couple of minutes but somewhere along the line Jeremiah said there i There's a fire inside of me. There's something burning inside of me, and I, I can't quit. I've got to go back in there. I've got to pick up that writing instrument. I've got to unroll that scroll. There's another chapter to write. There's more of life to write in God's history. And ladies and gentlemen, if you have Jesus Christ as your Savior, there's something living inside of you. It's called the Holy Spirit of God. And that fire, no matter what the pressure, no matter what the persecution that comes, it will not go out. We can't quit. See, the devil thinks. That this equality act that you're hearing about. We've been told by our sources in Washington, D.C., they have got churches circled on their radar. Kevin McCarthy is a good friend of our pastors. He made a profession of faith. pastor led him to Christ years ago. He has told us Lancaster Baptist Church is in their sights at the DOJ. And we've been told that if churches do not subscribe to this Equality Act of hiring transgender people in their ministries, they will take our properties. Now we have $75 million worth of property at Lancaster Baptist Church. We're in the process of building another 4.5 million project right now. People have already given half that money to start that project. We're starting it as I speak. and They're going to threaten to take those properties. And Dr. Gibbs on a call two weeks ago with us said they've pulled evangelical churches and only 5% of evangelical churches are willing to give up their property. They're willing to sign on to that Equality Act and keep their property. Ladies and gentlemen, the devil thinks that if he can bring enough pressure, enough persecution to God's people, that they will quit. But I want to remind us tonight, upon this rock, Jesus said, I will build my church. That word is ecclesia. That means Berean Baptist Church, a local called out assembly of people. You, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We cannot quit. Oh, we're going to get discouraged. We're going to get frustrated. We're going to look at what's going on in this world and we're going to say, Lord, I don't get this. We didn't sign up for this. This isn't fair. This isn't right. And the devil thinks if he can get enough pressure on us, we'll just throw in the towel. But ladies and gentlemen, there's another chapter to write in the history of Brean Baptist Church. There are more people to be saved. There are more Christians to disciple. There's an area to reach for Christ. The devil has a short memory. One day the devil clapped with glee. He kicked up his heels in excitement as they rolled that stone in front of that tomb outside of Jerusalem. And they sealed it with the Roman guard. And the devil thought, now I've got him. Now this message is stopped. But he forgot that behind that stone was the very one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Oh, the devil clapped his hands with glee as they drug Paul, the apostle, outside the city and left him for dead. And the devil thought, now we'll hear this babbler no more. But he no more and turned around and that body began to move. And Paul stood up and shook the dust off. And he said later in 1 Corinthians 9, If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. Ye necessity is laid upon me. Ye woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel of Jesus Christ. One day they put their bony fingers in the face of Peter and John and they said, you will never speak the name Jesus Christ again. You got it? And Peter said, We could not but speak the things that we had both seen and heard. You see, Amos said, The lion hath roared, who can but fear? The Lord hath spoken, who can but prophesy? We have no choice in this matter. We've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are a holy nation, a peculiar people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We can't put the pen down. We must continue on. We must assemble. We must worship. We must pray. We must pass our tracks. We must continue to disciple God's people. We must preach and teach. We have no choice. I remember July 4th, 1976, very well. It was a Sunday. And I started a revival that morning in, in El Paso, Texas. It was a good morning. Good Sunday school crowd, good morning service, good spirit good response, that evening people came back and again a spirit of anticipation and place nearly full with people and good singing, fellowship, preaching. But my heart was heavy because I had drunk the Kool-Aid. I honestly in my heart thought this is it. This is the last day. I mean, I'd been told that the interstate highways that were built in this nation were built for our military and, and, the, and the walls that they built at the exits were so they could shut it off and, and we could be under a military state just like that. And I believed it. That's what I'd been told. That's what I'd heard preaching about all those years in college. And, and, and I thought, you know, this is it. I don't know what's going to happen. A bomb's going to drop. I don't know what's going to happen, but America's going to be destroyed by midnight tonight. This is the last day. And after that evening service, I remember the people went out and I was staying in a little room there in the church building and I went and put my Bible up and changed my clothes and I decided to go for a walk. And I started walking across the city of El Paso. Now, El Paso is a very long city east to west. It's not very wide, north, to south, but east to west, it's long. In fact, today, if you drive across El Paso east to west or west to east, it'll take you about an hour and 10 minutes in good traffic. It's a very long city. Skirts along our southern border with Mexico. Great city of Juarez, just over the border. I began to walk those streets, and I just kind of talking to myself, talking to the Lord, and I said, "Lord, this is it. And I, I, I know you have every right to destroy us. I mean, we've, we've blown it. America has a Christian heritage." I mean, in God we trust, we didn't, we didn't come up with that last year. Those words, in God we trust, were emblazoned in the sails of the Mayflower. There are 93 references to God in our U.S. Constitution. I mean, this nation, I, I used to dig graves when I was a teenager at a cemetery. Did you know that American graveyards, the the, the the graves lie east to west? You don't dig them north to south, you dig them east to west. And when you bury somebody, their head always resides at the west end of the grave. You know why? Because we're a Christian nation. When we rise in the resurrection, we're facing the east to face the Lord. We're a Christian nation, whether we admit it or not. We were founded on these things. And I said, God, I, I, I know we've messed up. And we don't deserve another day or year. But I said, Lord, I'd sure like a chance. I'd like to hold some revivals. My wife and I, we'd like to have some kids, see if we could maybe raise them to love you and serve you. Lord, can you give us a little more time? I just prayed, talked. And as I walked across that city and just absorbed in my thoughts and prayers, I I looked at my watch. It was 12.05. It was Monday. It was July 5th. And I thought, we made it. (laughs) We're we're still here, I think. I think I'm still here. Wow. Then I thought, yeah, but I'm on central time. Maybe God's on mountain time. I better keep praying. And I walked a little further and prayed some more and walked a little further and prayed some more and one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock. As I got back to that church about five o'clock, that sun was just coming up over the eastern horizon of El Paso. And God didn't speak to me in an audible voice. He never has. But can I share with you what he told me in my heart? He said, son, You just be faithful with every day I give you and let me take care of the calendar. And could I encourage you with that thought tonight? When it's all over, the only thing that's going to matter is whether or not we were faithful. Regardless of the circumstances, the events of our time, the only thing that's going to matter when we stand before Him is were we faithful? God's got the calendar. He's got it all figured out. Our job is to be faithful. And Let me encourage you as Berean Baptist Church this afternoon, at the close of, of these meetings, don't let the revival stop now. The meetings end in a couple of minutes, but the revival can go on and should go on. Why? Because God's not ready to put the period yet. God's got some more history to write And until he puts the final period on our life, on our time here on this earth, we need to be faithful. And may we dedicate ourselves afresh and anew this afternoon. I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to faithfully raise my kids. I'm going to faithfully serve in this church. I'm going to faithfully witness to those around me. I'm going to faithfully read my Bible. I'm going to faithfully do what I can do for the cause of Christ. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, Thank you for Jeremiah. He didn't see a lot of results from his ministry. But Lord, you used this man in an amazing way. And Lord, even as your people went into captivity, you told them when they got to Babylon, go ahead and build a house. Go ahead and have some children. Raise your families, because I'm going to bring you out. I've got to plan through all this. You're not going to stay there forever. And Lord, we don't know what the horizon has in mind for us in history. We we don't know what tomorrow holds. We just know you're in control. And I pray that we would live our lives faithfully, knowing what we know is right to do. I thank you for people, even on this holiday weekend, that have been in church, brought their children, and just enjoyed fellowship one with another, and sung your praises, and allowed the Word of God to be opened, and preached, and And they've responded. And Lord, that's all that matters to you. And so I pray that you would help us to continue on now to be faithful in those things we know are right to do. And Lord, we'll let you keep the schedule. We'll let you control the calendar. And Lord, we'll trust you with that. So give us now courage to be faithful. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and Maybe we could sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Could you play that for us? Could we find that number? And Would you mind leading us if you could? Great is Thy Faithfulness. And maybe you need to come forward. I I don't know. Maybe you need to just there in your seat as you stand and sing this song. Make it a prayer of dedication. Lord, I want to be faithful. I want to be faithful. Do we need to be careful? Of course. Careful with our health, careful in our society with what's going on around us. But as we're careful, let's be faithful to the Lord. And As we sing about God's faithfulness, may God help us to be faithful to Him. We'll sing a verse, and Pastor can come and continue our close as he feels led. Lead us in that first.